0: Welcome to A Beggar Who Found Bread. I'm your host, Brad, and I'm a beggar who found the bread of life, Messiah Yeshua. And I'm letting others know where I found this bread that they may see him for who he truly is. This episode, Leper Messiah. Credit the incomparable Metallica for the title to this episode, So much could be said about this band. Back in 1986, they had to cancel a show in Indiana because rhythm guitarist and lead vocalist James Hetfield broke his wrist while skateboarding. For a couple of months thereafter, John Marshall of Metal Church filled in on rhythm guitar. Oh, and early in his Metallica career, lead guitarist Kirk Hammett, formerly of the band Exodus, he took guitar lessons from the one and only Joe Satriani. That's right. If you're going to learn, learn from the best. I wonder what he charges for lessons. Maybe I can still live my dream. Ah, alas, tis but a dream. And it's not about the music anyway. It's about the message, Leper Messiah. We are currently going through a series of episodes looking at the Jewish expectations of the Messiah why so many do not accept Yeshua, and why some Christians and Messianic followers of Yeshua get drawn away from him. The first episode of the series is titled, I Don't Believe You. You can check that out when you get time. In that episode, we looked at many of the expectations of Messiah, um, according to the uh, present-day Jews, and also... Uh, some historical arguments that they have against Yeshua as Messiah. So we took a look at some of those things. Again, when you get time, give it a listen. Today, we're going to examine some more Jewish objections to Yeshua as Messiah. And as a reminder, um, some great resources that are out there. Dr. Michael Brown has a series of books on Jewish objections to Yeshua and also, I just learned, I haven't read this, uh, this book, uh, Eaton Barr has a book, Refuting Jewish Objections to Christianity. And Eaton Barr wrote a favorite book of mine, Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. I highly recommend that book. Very well done. Appreciate that one. And so now we're going to jump in and take a look at some more objections. A major theological objection to Yeshua as Messiah is that Jews do not believe in a trinity. And first of all, we need to all acknowledge the word trinity does not appear anywhere in the scripture. We have to accept that and acknowledge it because it's a fact. It doesn't. It's not there. The argument that is commonly brought up is this would be idolatry as it is thought to be worshiping three gods, so be idolatry, polytheism. And of course, we do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, or Hashem. He revealed himself to us. To the world through his son, the Messiah, Yeshua, who is the express image and reflection of Hashem. And we are led, moved, and spoken to by his spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, the breath or wind of God. What can muddy the waters a bit? a lot, is some of the language used in Christianity, even in some of the songs that we sing and in some of the preaching, there is father-son confusion. Now, you may hear songs with verses to the effect of, and this isn't, I don't think this is an actual song lyric, but something to the effect of, thank you for shedding your blood and dying for me, Father God. I hope you can recognize the issue with this type of thinking because there is a distinction. Think of this To whom did Yeshua pray? To himself? To the Holy Spirit? No, to God the Father. Hebrews 5 7. In the days of his life on earth, Yeshua offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So we see there is a clear distinction here. Yeshua offered up prayers and pleas to the one able to save him from death. God the Father. So there is a distinction And we read in the Gospels of Yeshua crying out to the Father to let the cup of suffering pass. And he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. We can see there is a distinction here. And I think we followers of Yeshua, Christians, need to be cautious in how we portray these matters. We don't read of the Father praying to Yeshua or the Holy Spirit, for that matter. As always, please study to show yourself approved of God. And there's even a version of the Bible that has inserted the name of Jesus into the Old Testament writings in the place where most English versions have the word LORD, all caps. So what's written there in Hebrew is yod heh vav What We would commonly say Yahweh, Yahweh, Yehovah. To some Jews, this is the Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. This is the unspoken name, which is why they will, they insert the word Hashem, in these places. And they do this because they do not believe that the name should be written or spoken. It is sacred. However, we can certainly agree that this would not be translated as Jesus or Yeshua. And that is a dangerous way to handle the scriptures. You're not allowed to just insert Jesus' name anywhere you want because there are distinctions. And I don't think anyone inserts his name where they read of the Holy Spirit or Ruach HaKodesh. So, again, just be, we have to be cautious. We have to be careful with how we're handling the scriptures. And certainly um, for those who who translate and write versions of the scriptures... Yeah, that should be done incredibly prayerfully and carefully and with great fear. So as to the uh, triune nature of God, and again, there are those distinctions, but let's look at the Hebrew texts because in the same way, the Jews do not believe in three gods, nor do I, and I assume, nor do you. Once again, we put ourselves in a position of attempting to, with our finite minds to grasp and encapsulate the infinite God. Here are proof texts to support a plural nature, or if, uh, a triune nature, of Adonai Elohim, the Lord our God. Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the flying creatures of the sky, over the livestock, over the whole earth, and over every crawling creature that crawls on the land. He said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Plural pronouns. Us. Our. Then in the very next verse we read, God created humankind in his image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. He and his, singular, masculine pronouns. So what's going on here? Well, the word translated as God in many versions of the, uh, of the scriptures is the Hebrew word Elohim, Elohim. And in Hebrew, it's important that we recognize the letters I am at the end of a word denotes it is plural. Elohim is a plural word. So there really is not an issue or inconsistency with acknowledging a plural or triune nature of God. In the Shema, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which starts at verse 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, Adonai Elohim, Adonai is one. Love Adonai Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Adonai Elohim, translated English, is Lord our God, right? Love the Lord our God. He is one. Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. So we see, and that's that's in Hebrew, so we see the use again of Elohim, the plural word, and Echad, which means one. In addition to it meaning simply the definition of one, it carries with it the understanding of altogether one. So There are distinctions and different aspects of Adonai Elohim, but in that, He is one. He is altogether one, all in all. He is the Most High, the God of Israel, the Holy One, blessed be He. The triune nature of God does not contradict the whole of Scripture. We Christians do occasionally get sloppy in how we convey it, though, which causes confusion and concern. But the argument against a triune nature or plural nature of God is invalidated by the Hebrew texts themselves. The Torah clearly supports a plural nature of Hashem. The 13th chapter of Deuteronomy defines how to tell a true prophet from a false one. Um, Many call it the Deuteronomy 13 test. And of course, in this, the Messiah must also pass this Deuteronomy 13 test because if he is found to be a false prophet, he could in no way be Mashiach, Messiah. So read through that chapter and you'll see... Yeshua passes with flying colors. And one of the major concerns for a prophet is if they lead people to follow other gods aside from Hashem. Uh, Yeshua, very plainly, always pointed to Hashem, the Father, him who has sent me, he would say. He said, he said that his doctrine was not his own, but it comes from him who sent me, and so on. He always pointed people and directed them to the Father. And he himself, again, prayed to the Father, and he encourages us, he directs us, commands us, if you will, to do the same, to pray to the Father. And we pray in Yeshua's name We pray for the sake of Yeshua and in his name we pray because we have no access to the throne of the Father apart from Yeshua. So we must come to the Father in the name of Yeshua. Also, a prophet must observe the Torah and never direct anyone to disobey it. Yeshua, again, fits Perfectly in here, but this is where some Jews will try and point out that Yeshua broke the Torah by not observing the Sabbath properly, and this is um, you know in a conversation with a local rabbi um, I was recently I was told that no matter how many miracles someone performs, if he breaks the Torah, he is no prophet. And could not be Messiah. Now he was alluding to Yeshua performing miracles, works, healings on Shabbat, the Sabbath. He didn't out and out say this. He was just he was kind of dancing around the topic a little bit, and and uh, but so he alluded to that in what he was saying. And I, I, uh, I don't know if he thought I was uh, a a little slow on the uptake, uptake, but I was I, I was listening and. You know, he told me that in the Talmud, it says, in saving a life, one may set aside Torah. And he clarified that if someone is in need of emergency help on Shabbat, saving that one's life is an acceptable and even holy reason to set aside the command of not to do work on Shabbat. He implied that only emergent life-saving actions may be taken. And he gave me um, three, three exceptions to this rule of, you know, saving, saving a life, uh, setting aside Torah to save a life. And uh, they, they were all, uh, all circled around, like, if someone threatened your life or the life of another, either on Shabbat or any other time, but to save your life, they insist you bow down to an idol or have intimate relations with someone who is not your spouse and so forth. If your life is threatened and you do not set aside Torah to save a life in that case um, and you know to bow and worship or to deny your faith, those kinds of things. You you would be martyred for your faith in in those cases, and that would be that would be um, a, a righteous death, and that would be uh, what you are what you are commanded to do. So, it is well documented that Yeshua healed on Shabbat, and this was a common charge levied against him, leveled against him um, by by his the rulers of his day, the religious rulers of his day, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. So present-day Jews still use this as evidence against Yeshua as Messiah since these healings were not necessarily emergent. There is you know, a couple of examples. There's a man born blind, so he's been in that condition a long time. Um, another man who has been paralyzed for 38 years, and these uh, these would not be deemed "quote unquote" life saving healings, according to uh, according to the rabbi and popular Jewish understanding today. And so I just I listened to the rabbi, uh, um, and again he did not overtly say. This is why Yeshua could not be the Messiah. He was kind of going about this in a very roundabout way. And I really, I didn't put two and two together till after I left my visit with him. But when I arrived and shared a bit about myself, we were just getting to know each other. And the rabbi asked me what I did for a living. So I told him that I'm a substance abuse counselor. I work with men and women who struggle with addiction. And he said, you are saving lives. And I smiled and I thanked him. He said, no, you are saving lives, and to save a life is to save the world. And he explained that that uh, expression comes from the Talmud, to save a life is to save the world. And he shared uh, a deeper meaning of it, which was really beautiful and I I appreciated greatly, and I was humbled to hear it. Um, What he said of me and my work— actually supports the healings of Yeshua performed on Shabbat. If I, in counseling men and women who struggle with addiction, am saving lives, and it is permissible for the sake of saving a life to set aside Torah, then certainly what Yeshua did on Shabbat, was saving lives and saving the world. See, to those individuals whom Messiah healed on Shabbat, did he not save their lives? A man born blind who could not work, not provide for himself or his family, just destined to sitting on a corner, panhandling and begging. He has his sight restored did that not save his life and his world? And the same can be said of the paralytic by the pool of, of uh, Bethzatha. Wasn't his life and world saved by this encounter with the Son of God? 38 years he sat there. And some would say, well, they could have waited another day. They have an encounter with the Son of the living God. This was their time. It it happened on Shabbat. Their lives, their worlds were saved. And there are 39 prohibitions on Shabbat. Um, and saving a life, uh, of course, is not one of them. That's not a prohibition. You're not prohibited from saving a life. It is allowable. And even, um, even the arguments Yeshua provided more than overcome the objections to his healing miracles on Shabbat. If your donkey falls in a ditch on Shabbat, don't you help get it out? Well, of course you do. Loving your neighbor must be allowable on Shabbat. This is what Yeshua did in performing these works of God, and as he pointed out, you know, these types of things are uh, these are the weightier matters of Torah, justice, mercy. Those are, those are the weightier matters. Loving God with all our heart, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor. And what does that look like? Um, there is an argument against Yeshua as Messiah because he made himself unclean Ceremonial, ritually unclean by touching lepers, and you can check out um, the "Can't Touch This" episode to dig a little more into that topic. Um, my my personal feeling belief on that is that I I don't believe he did make himself ceremonial ceremonially unclean. However, looking at you know looking at Torah and he is a man uh, Yeshua. Uh, Yeshua was a physical man, and so if we are to say that he was ceremonial unclean ceremonially unclean, he would have done he would have done you know the the right things, he would have taken the right steps, brought the offering, had the mikvah and all and all those things to be ceremonially unclean does not equal sin um, so that 's what i 'm trying to get out, but once more. Um, in this, where where uh, some would argue that since he touched lepers, um, he, he disqualified himself as Messiah. Once more, the rabbinic writings support a Messiah who spends time with lepers. From the Talmud, uh, this is Sanhedrin 98a and 98b, just some portions from each of these from the Talmud. In, in which this, uh, in this, these passages, they actually use the name, they refer to Leper Messiah in the Talmud. And so here's a little bit from Sanhedrin 98a and b from the Talmud. His name is the Leper Scholar. As it is written, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him a Leper. Smitten of God and afflicted. When will the Messiah come? Go and ask him himself, was his reply. Where is he sitting? At the entrance. And by what sign may I recognize him? He is sitting among the poor lepers. And the passage then goes on to describe the Messiah carefully bandaging the wounds of lepers. Instead of shunning them. So, not only do the rabbis' writings support Messiah touching and caring for lepers, they use a passage from Isaiah 53 as proof text. If you recall from the I don't believe episode, many modern Jews nowadays say that that chapter, actually from 52 through 54, doesn't refer to the Messiah, but to the nation of Israel as a whole. And here we see again the rabbis have undermined those attempts to eliminate that as a messianic prophecy. They use it to to draw pictures and uh, um, acknowledgement of Messiah. What would Messiah do? And he did those things. And it's in it's in the Talmud. Another ploy to cause doubts of Yeshua as Messiah is what appear to be inconsistencies within the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament writings. One of the primary focal points being there are differences in the genealogies listed in Matthew and Luke. And some of the names do differ. So if they can't even get his lineage right, uh, how could he be Messiah? why are they different and it's a valid question there are actually a few very valid explanations now, some people will say that Matthew recorded the lineage of Joseph's family while Luke presented the family line of Mary or his includes um, some of Mary's uh, lineage in his genealogy and, that, and that, is, that is valid. That could very well be exactly what it was. Um, and Luke doing so because Joseph was not literally the father of Yeshua. There is also the possibility that since Matthew was writing to Jews and Luke to a Greek audience... This could explain why there are differences. They would write differently to different audiences. And one point of this being that it could be that Joseph is the son of a Goel, a kinsman redeemer. In the Hebrew understanding, if a man dies without a child his brother, or a close relative, was to take the widow as his bride as kinsman-redeemer, the firstborn of that relationship would be attributed to the husband who died. For example, if Fred and Alice were married and Fred died before having a child, Stan a relative of Fred's, takes Alice as his own wife. Stan and Alice have a son, Charlie. Charlie would be known as the son of Fred, the man who died in the Hebrew culture. With this understanding, there is a potential that Joseph was the son of a kinsman redeemer. So Luke Writing to Gentiles, Greeks, he would use the name of the man, Heli, who raised Joseph. Whereas Matthew, writing to Jews, would refer to the first husband, Jacob, who died. And Heli came in as, as a kinsman redeemer, but Jacob would have... would. Uh, Joseph would have been credited as Jacob's son. So there is is that potential. And another valid reason for the differences, we see Luke's genealogy goes back to Adam and is much lengthier. Matthew, again, is writing to Jews. And he starts with Abraham. That makes sense. He breaks down the lineage in three sections of 14, from Abraham to David, 14, from David to uh, Babylonian exile, 14, and from exile to Yeshua, 14. Why would Matthew break it down in this manner? Because to stay with 14 in each of these, he has to omit people to get to that number. So it's not complete. Once again, just a reminder here Matthew is writing to Jews, and this was a common means of reporting a family line. You see, the numeric value of King David's name, David, is 14. So to reinforce Yeshua is the son of David as Messiah was prophesied to be, Matthew would use this method to amplify this point. He was underscoring. Yes, he is the Messiah. And here, here is, here is how this comes together. And so he would use 14 to point that out. 14 being again the numeric value of King David's name. So those are three valid explanations to the differences of the genealogies listed. And I'm sure there are others as well. This perceived inconsistency is used by atheists, by Jews, anti-missionaries, which include former followers of Yeshua who have fallen away from him, embracing him as Uh, when they once embraced him as Messiah, and they use this now as, as a reason to deny him. As I pointed out in the previous episode, through Isaiah, Adonai reveals that the Jews will have their eyes blinded, ears blocked, and hearts fat. Yeshua even quotes this passage from Isaiah in Matthew 13, revealing to his disciples why some of his own people would reject him. As to those who have fallen away, which is, it's incredibly heartbreaking. Um, And my my limited experience with individuals in this category, um, some of whom begin seeking, you know, started off by seeking the Jewish roots of the Christian faith and then question and ultimately sometimes deny Yeshua as Messiah. And for those folks, it, it, it almost seems like, for lack of a better phrase, like they become conspiracy theorists, frequently questioning the motives of Scripture and Messiah and his disciples. Well, why did they do it this way? Why did it was it written that way? Why do you think that happened? And then when questioned on their own theories, particularly backed with scripture, they say, I don't know, I don't know. As it is written in First Peter 2.20, For if after escaping the world's pollution through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Yeshua the Messiah, they again become entangled in these things and are overcome, the end for them has become worse than the beginning it is a scary thing and you know there's this big move right now to question everything question everything and and it has infiltrated the faith and it's it's not just a matter of re-examining things you know i like um um how new to new to Torah and his name escapes me for a second right now, but um, new to Torah uh, the host of that podcast he says you know when we're when we're reexamining our faith um, and we start to for those coming out of mainstream evangelical Christianity and want to see from a Jewish Hebrew perspective the reality of what's going on here. He says, take everything and put it in the front yard. You know, everything you've learned, put it in the front yard like you're going to have a yard sale. And then slowly, as you examine each thing, bring it back into the house if it lines up with all of Scripture. And if it does not, leave it, you know, leave it in the front yard, continue to examine it, and eventually, you know, have a yard sale, let it go. Um, But what's going on now is a complete deconstruction of the faith, just deconstructing it overall and leaving people confused and lost. And I'm going to be honest, I did not think that in my lifetime I would be having discussions about the shape of the earth. I really didn't at this time in history. But those conversations are increasing. And it, well, is the earth flat like a disc? We can't believe everything we've been told. So we're going back to this as Uh, You know, as a topic and a debate, is it flat like a disc or is it spherical? You know, and at the risk of being canceled, I'm going to tell you, I believe the Earth is round, spherical, a globe. Just putting that out there. However, if you believe it's flat, good on you. We can still be friends. Because the reality is, I honestly don't care either way what shape the planet is. I live here and I have a mission and a purpose. Whether I'm walking on a giant ball or a disc doesn't impact why I'm here and what I am here to do. I'm a beggar who found the bread of life and I've got to let others know where I found this bread. That's why I'm here. And we have to go back, go back to the words of Yeshua to have faith. Like a child, to believe. We think of that. We think of of children, and I always love. And it and it happened here recently, um, at, at a, a pre-service prayer time. Gathered the you know the adults are gathered in a room, and I love when a child just kind of walks in and joins the prayer circle and you know and drops in drops in a prayer it is so humbling it is so simple and so filled with faith it is it's incredible and it does i get i do i get i get choked up when i hear it because it's just awesome to hear their faith and it's so encouraging that's how we're supposed to believe we're supposed to have faith like a child and and here's the thing. There are over 300 prophecies about Messiah in the Tanakh, Old T- Testament writings, which Yeshua has fulfilled. 300, which he fulfilled. These prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Yeshua fulfilling even a handful of them, even 10 of them, let alone all 300 of them, is staggeringly improbable, if not impossible. So if someone wants to turn their back and ignore all of that evidence, that is his or her prerogative. I can educate people, but I can't force them to understand or accept. Ultimately, all any of us can do is plant and water seeds it is god who adds the increase and only he can open the eyes and ears and soften hearts i will say one you know one thing that i find incredibly disturbing is for those who have fallen away who have who have decided they will no longer pursue or follow yeshua as the messiah they deny him if that's your decision move forward with your life um, and w- whether that means that you um, go through the proselytization process and become Jewish and start attending a synagogue, good on you go do go do your thing um, and, and, and move on in that. But what is so concerning is what they really like to do is infiltrate into Christian circles either at Christian churches, um, you know mainstream, or within messianic communities and they come in and they plant these seeds of discord and they are disruptive and destructive and that's and that's what they go in to do and that that isn't anything that that God would call us to do and so it's it's very discouraging when when I see that or hear of people doing that. Like you know what, if the, if that's the realization you've come to and that's what you want to believe, go wear it out, cowboy. But don't come in and try and upset and cause divisions in other bodies because of wh- because of where you've allowed yourself to go. Rant over for this moment. In any event, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you listening. Um, Please study to show yourself approved of God. And Lord willing, there will be more with this series, which I hope is blessing you, challenging you, and providing you with some better understanding of the questions and how, uh, how a good look at the Scripture really answers and overcomes all of these objections. Until next time. May the favor of our Master Yeshua, the Messiah, may the favor he found in the eyes of our Father be upon you, and may the peace of God which passes all understanding be yours in Messiah Yeshua. Khen shalom.